on Wednesday nights, every inch of space downtown is used for ministry. And, and this means, at least for now, that a small group of sixth grade girls meet with their leaders in my office every Wednesday night. And several of these young ladies have started writing notes on my whiteboard. And so when I come back into my office, I see some of these notes. And there's one particular note that caught my attention this week. And it says, Penelope was here again. Good luck at your sermon. Don't blow it. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, thanks for the encouragement, Penelope. I need all the encouragement I can Get. And whenever you're teaching the Word of God, you never want to blow it. You never want to blow it. But our passage this morning is a foundational passage in understanding the book of Romans because in verse 18, Paul pivots. He is pivoting to explain what is wrong with the world. This is the question What is wrong with us? We all know that the world is not the way that it could be, we know that the world is not the way that it should be. And if we're honest, we know that we are not the way that we should be. It's not just a problem out there, it's a problem inside of each one of us. So what is wrong with the world? And the passage lays out two obvious truths that explain the answer to that question, what's wrong with the world? And as we dive into these two truths, I wanted to mention that we shouldn't read Romans 1, uh, really 1, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, as if the Apostle Paul is describing a step-by-step process that each individual takes in their turning away from God. He's not saying, okay, each person, this is the exact process each person follows in their rebellion against God. What he's doing is he's painting a picture of humanity writ large. What is wrong with humanity? So when you look at different cultures, uh, our our culture uh, right now, 2023, or cultures in different parts of the planet, on different parts of the planet, different time periods, Paul is trying to answer the question, fundamentally, what is wrong with us as human beings? So here we go. Number one, what's wrong with us? We know God. We know God. There are five clues in the passage, all pointing to the fact that we know God. Not only have we been created in the image of God, the claim that Paul is making in Romans 1 is that you do know God. You do know God. Clue number one, verse 18, we suppress the truth of God. Verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You cannot suppress the truth of God if you do not have the truth of God. Clue number two, God has shown us the truth of God. God himself has shown us the truth of God. Verse 19 says, Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God has God has created us in such a way that we have a basic knowledge of God, of himself. God has imprinted human beings with the basic knowledge of himself. Clue number three, we know God. Paul just comes out and says, we know God. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. You have a unique capacity to know God. We're not like the animal world. God has formed us, fashioned us with a unique capacity to know and worship God. Clue number four, we exchanged the glory of God. Verse 23 says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So he's saying at, at a fundamental level, what we've done as human beings is we've, we have the knowledge of God. We understand, at least to some degree, the glory of the immortal God, and we've given it away. Clue number five, we understand God. 
Obviously, I'm not saying we understand God in his fullness, but we have a basic understanding of God. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. The phrase, being understood, means that people understand, that we, we understand some basic truths about God, his eternal power and divine nature. Now, where does this basic knowledge of God come from? Where do, we, where do people gain the basic knowledge of God? Well, it's through creation, since the creation of the world. It has been clearly seen. The character of God is clearly seen through the creation of the world. This is what is called general revelation, the doctrine of general revelation, that God is speaking to human beings through creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. God is speaking to people through what he has made. Sometimes when I talk to an atheist or I'll talk to a skeptic, I will ask them the question, uh, do you ever find it suspicious that the universe is beautiful? Do you ever find it suspicious that the universe is beautiful? It's absolutely brilliant. It is objectively beautiful. And do you ever find it suspicious that we are able to appreciate the beauty of creation? Dolphins do not marvel at the, at the ocean. They're, they're not just marveling at the, at the sea. That's not what's happening. Bears don't marvel at the mountains. But human beings can't help but marvel. It is as if creation grabs us. The glory of creation grabs us. You'll, you'll be outside and you'll look up at the stars and you'll be grabbed by the glory, the glory of the stars. Or if you are walking along the beach, here's a picture of a sunset. If you're really there and you see the ocean and you see the sun setting, it is, it is a marvelous reality. Or here's a picture of a lake, and you observe the mountains, you observe the lake, the trees. It's a beautiful reality. Or you go into the mountains, if you stand next to those beautiful sheep and you look up at the mountains, it is incredible. If you want to go to the next, the next picture here, when you're standing at the foot of the mountains and you look up, you're not indifferent towards the beauty and glory of the mountains. You're not just like, oh, whatever, you know, that's not what happens. You go, whoa, what is that? What in the world is that? Or trees, but this is true of just about everything in creation. Trees are glorious. If you want to go to the next tree here, trees are glorious. Seals are glorious. Like seals are just, they're incredible creatures. Here's a, if you want to go to the next picture here, here's a baby seal. I knew you were going to say, aww. We are the only creatures that say, aw, when you see a baby creature. Dolphins say that looks, or sharks say that looks like lunch. That's what it looks like. Or if you want to go to the next, the next picture here. Aw. <laughs> There's a glory that seals have. Or here's a black jaguar. These are incredible creatures. And it pains me to say this, but, but, but cats are glorious creatures. Uh, even cats are glorious creatures. There's a photographer who traveled around the world taking pictures of the most glorious cats on the planet. And so do you want to see number one? This is the most beautiful cat he could find on the planet. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> okay, that's an average cat. It's just an average cat. But anywhere you look, Anywhere you look in physical reality, you just look at the world. Just look at anything. Go look at anything and think about anything. Creation declares 
the glory of God. It is unavoidable. Look at a cell. Look at DNA. Look at the laws of nature. Look at the immune system. Just anything. Study anything, and it will declare the glory of God. This is why Paul says in verse 21, for though they knew God, they knew God. The reality of God is, a, is unavoidable. Now, Paul is not arguing that general revelation or the knowledge we gain through creation is sufficient to save someone from sin and death and hell. That's not what he's arguing. We need the revelation of Christ, the glory of Christ in order to be saved. But the glory of creation is enough so that no person can look at God on the day of judgment and say, there is no evidence for your existence. All men are without excuse. So what's wrong with us? We know God and we don't know God. We know God and we don't know God. This is the human experience, even the fallen human experience. There's a, there's a part of the human psyche that knows God. And at the same time, we do not know God. What is wrong with human beings at the deepest level? We don't know God. If you ask our culture right now, what are the biggest threats to humanity? The biggest challenges facing humanity? Our, cult our culture will say climate change, poor education, illegal immigration, inflation, a bad economy. They'll list off a hundred things, but rarely will anyone say the biggest problem we face is that men don't know God. People don't know God. We are created to know God. We are created in the image of God to know and love and worship God, yet we do not know God. Romans 18, 118. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do we do naturally in our fallen state apart from the grace of God? What do we do with the knowledge of God? We suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. The word suppress carries with it two really helpful word pictures. The first is water. It's a picture of putting, placing something underneath the water. So what we do with the knowledge of God is we suppress the knowledge of God underneath unrighteousness. We plunge it into unrighteousness. The second helpful word picture is wrestling. This word could be used to describe someone in a wrestling match, where if you're getting into it in a wrestling, wrestling match and you're trying to hold down your opponent, this is what we do with the truth of God. Naturally, apart from the grace of God, we hold the truth of God down. We suppress it. What does it look like practically to suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Paul uses two words. He uses the word godlessness. Godlessness. That means to live like there is no God. We live as if there is no God. And when we live as if there is no God, it leads to unrighteous living, how we treat people. If someone does not fear God, they will not respect people. If someone does not fear the God who created the universe, the holy God of the universe, then that person will not respect those created in the image of God. Just look at the world, look at human history. People will not respect men. We suppress the truth by living as if there is no God, and it leads to all forms of unrighteousness in our lives. This means that our problem at a basic level is not that we do not know what is right and wrong. A lot of people, they, they look at humanity and, they, humanity and they say that the primary issue is that people need more education, and I'm all about more education, but that's not the source of our problem. That's not the fundamental source of our problem. We are moral creatures. We have a deep sense, a deep knowledge of what is right, and a deep knowledge of what is wrong. 
And yet we do what we know to be wrong all the time. I was thinking about this point uh, this week while, while I was studying at Starbucks and a song came on by uh, Taylor Swift. And it's the song, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. So this is a confession by Taylor. She said, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Did that knowledge stop, Taylor? Absolutely not. That's why she's lying on the cold, hard ground, <laughs> screaming, trouble, trouble, trouble. So she's, this is a confession. She's saying, I knew but I didn't listen to what I knew. I knew, but I didn't listen. And this is significant when you're trying to think about your life as an individual and other people. Like, why do parents beat up their kids? This is a very important question. Why do they do that? Is it because they do not know that it's wrong? That's not the issue. Why do you lie? Do you lie because you don't know that it's wrong? But you know that it's wrong, just like I know that it's wrong, but why do we do it? It's because we have a fundamental moral problem. In our fallen state, we prefer sin over righteousness. We prefer our way over honoring God. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. We know there's a creator, but we just live like there is no God. We don't glorify him or show gratitude. Why do we not glorify him or show gratitude? Because we want to be God. I want to be God. I want to be God in my life. This applies to the high-powered CEO who's just bulldozing everyone along the way, making all kinds of money, ripping people off. That, that person, they want to be God. But your grandma wants to be God too. Everyone wants to be God. You, you want to be God of your life. And if we live to the glory of God, if we show gratitude towards God, we are not giving credit to ourselves. We're acknowledging God, glorifying God. We want the credit. We want to be at the center. Deep down, we think that the world revolves around us. Even though we know it's not true, we know that. But at the same time, it's like, man, everything is about us. We're so selfish. We want to be God. I want to be God, apart from the grace of God. Of God. One scholar says, imagine you decide one day that you want to be a police officer. You just say, I want to be a police officer. So you go on Amazon, you buy a really great police uh, uniform, and you put it on, and you walk down the street, and you say, I really like this. This is a great experience. You know, people, they're opening up doors for me. People straighten up when you walk into a, uh, into a store. People are buying you free or giving you free donuts and coffee or whatever it is. You're, you're, you're experiencing some of the perks some of the perks of being a police officer, even though you're not. And so one day of being a police officer ends, and you say, hey, what am I going to do tomorrow? Well, yesterday was great. I'm going to be a police officer again. So you just dress up like a police officer again, day two, and then day three, and then day four. It's just going great. And then a year goes by, and then two years go by. And this is part of your identity. I'm a this is who I am. But then, but then you run into a real police officer. Now, when you see that real police officer coming down the street, what are you going to do? Are you going to go uh, shake his hand and say, how you doing? Is that what's going to happen? No way. You're going to ignore that police officer. You're going to run away from that police officer. Why? Because that real police officer knows, is going to know, you're a phony. You're a phony. You're not the real deal. And so you, you're going to hide. You're going to ignore. And I think in many ways, this is exactly what happens to us. All of us naturally dress up like God. And we pretend that we are the gods, that I'm the God of my life. And when I come into contact 
just with a little bit of the glory of God, I can't handle it in my flesh. I can't handle it because it exposes I'm not God. I'm not the center of the universe. This plays out in many ways in our lives. I was thinking about James 4, 12 this week. It, James says, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. What a truth. There is one lawgiver and there is one judge who is able to save and to destroy. Then he asks the question, but who are you? But who are you to judge your neighbor? He's exposing the reality that we want our standard. I want my standard to be the standard. And there's this subtle, this little thing inside of me that says people are accountable to me. People are account accountable to me, that I am the rightful judge of particular situations, that I should be in charge, that my standard is right. But James says, who are you? There is one lawgiver and there is one judge and it's not you. It's not me. And so there's, there's a part of us that says, I can't get into the presence of God. I don't even like the glory of God because it threatens me. It threatens me in a couple of ways. When we're in the presence of the, glor the glory of God, it becomes clear that I'm not God. It, I'm not God. It becomes clear that God is worthy of glory. I'm not worthy. And that I am accountable to God. That's, I am accountable to God. People aren't accountable to me. I am accountable to God for everything that I say, everything that I do. He is the one, he is the judge, the rightful judge of the world. Verse 20 says, for his invisible attributes, that is his, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. No one can go to God and say, no evidence for you. Paul is saying, you do know God. You know, you know, and you've suppressed it. And the process of ridding ourselves of the knowledge of God, this is what our society is currently doing. We are trying to get rid of anything that looks like the glory of God. Get rid of God. Get rid of his reality. The process of ridding ourselves of the knowledge of God is the process of undoing our own souls. When you get rid of the knowledge of God, you dehumanize yourself. You destroy your own soul. Look at verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. What a picture. Who darkens the human heart? I do. I do. I have darkened my own heart. This is such a vivid picture because if you, if you the, the contrast here is that if people go into the world and they look at creation, just look at creation, it becomes clear. There is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God and what we do with the knowledge of the glory of God is we say, I would rather gouge my own eyes out than look at the glory of God day after day after day. So we darken our own hearts. Why, why does their thinking, why does our thinking become worthless? That's what he says. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Why does it become worthless? Well, because if you reject God, if you reject the Bible, you still have to explain reality. You still have to explain the world that you live in. Questions like, where did the universe come from? If, you, if, you, if there is no God, where does the universe come from? What is the purpose of life? Where do objective moral values come from? I mean, aren't some things really wrong? Aren't some things really wrong? Don't you know the difference between what is right and wrong? 
And it's not just your preference, like, you know, selling a, a child as a slave. That's really wrong. That's morally wrong. But if there is no God, where does the sense, where does the standard of right and wrong come from? Why are human beings valuable? What is a man? What is a woman? When does human life begin? All the most basic questions in life cannot be answered apart from a creator God. And so when you reject God, you cannot answer the most basic questions in life in a coherent way. And if you listen to the answers offered by the world, it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. But this progression continues. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Our human conditions is such that we will worship. Every person here, all of us here, we will worship someone or something. It's not a question of whether you're going to worship something or not. We will worship. It's, It's just a question of what. What will we worship? And in our fallen state, what we do is we exchange the glory of God, who is the creator, who's worthy to be praised and worshiped. We exchange that glory for something of much lesser glory. Instead of worshiping God, we worship images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. We cut down a tree, we put some silver on it, and we worship it. We take a rock, we carve the rock, and we worship the rock. We take our hobby, we take fishing, and we say, that's what I'm living for. We worship fishing. We take money, which in and of itself is, it's not bad. But we worship money. We take sex, and we worship sex. We worship ourselves. We will worship anything that allows us to think that we're God, that we're in control. Anything that will gratify our own sinful desires, we will worship. Paul says this is what we do. This is what humanity has done. We've rejected God. We've taken the position of wisdom. We're wise. Look how smart we are. And we reject the glory of God. And we worship created things. This is, brothers and sisters, this is the undoing of our souls. This is madness. It is the undoing of our souls. And it, it is the undoing of society. Now, what is God's response to all of this? The God who knows all things, the God who has seen all things, what is the response of God? Wrath. Not indifference. Wrath. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is not indifferent towards this response. God is not indifferent towards sin and sinners. Rebellion against God, idolatry against God, worshiping things instead of God stirs up the very wrath of God. And I want to give you three basic truths about the wrath of God to help us wrap our minds around what the Apostle Paul is saying. Number one, wrath, it's the Greek word orge, means anger exhibited in punishment. What is wrath? It is anger exhibited in punishment. Wrath is more than anger. It is anger demonstrated in punishment. Now, when we think about the wrath of God, we ought not to think of a parent. Some of you have parents who would lose their minds and break windows and smash walls and say awful things. We ought not to think of God 
in the anger of God like that, like a parent who's lost control, or a friend or a spouse who's lost control. This is not the wrath of God. This is not God just super upset throwing lightning bolts at earth. This is not it at all. The wrath of God is his settled resolution to punish sin. The wrath of God is his settled resolution to punish sin. The wages of sin is death. And God will bring about that death. This is part of who he is. His character. It's anger exhibited in punishment. Number two, the wrath of God is good. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, this is very important. The wrath of God is good. The wrath of God is not a flaw in the character of God. Sometimes we talk about God's wrath in such a way that somehow we're ashamed of the wrath of God as if this is a flaw in his being. Like God could be a better being if he, was, if he had la- less wrath, but this is not true. The love of God is holy. It's holy. There's nothing like the love of God and the wrath of God is holy. There's nothing like the wrath of God. It is not a flaw in his character. It is good. Now, why is it good? Well, it's good because if God did not punish evil, imagine there was no wrath. If God did not respond to evil, if God did not punish evil, evil would win. If God did not punish evil, evil would win. Sin would triumph. Death would reign. One quick note here is that the goal of wrath, God is not just... God has goals in his wrath. He's accomplishing something in his wrath. The goal of wrath is peace through the elimination of sin and the triumph of righteousness. So what's going on in the wrath of God? The goal of God's wrath is peace through the elimination of evil and the triumph of righteousness. God will do away with evil forever. He will do away with evil forever. Is that good news? Absolutely. It is good news that evil will not triumph. It does not triumph. He will do away with evil forever. The new heavens and the new earth is where righteousness dwells. The new heavens and the new, and the new earth is, is not a place where we're going to be tempted to evil. There is no to do evil. There is no evil. There is no sin. Sin and death have been done away with. How does God do away with evil? It is through his wrath. His wrath is part of his plan to eliminate evil forever, that we might dwell with him in righteousness forever. Number three, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That phrase, for God's wrath is revealed. How should we think about the wrath of God? It is revealed. There are three modes of God's wrath. Mode number one is that God's wrath has been revealed. If God's wrath is being revealed right now, then yesterday it was revealed. And the day before that, and months before that, and centuries before before that, his wrath has been revealed. Consider Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, creation fell, and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That was a taste of his wrath, of his judgment. Genesis chapter 9 Evil on planet Earth had grown so much that God wiped out everyone on the planet through a flood, except for Noah and his family, eight in all. Genesis 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a taste of his wrath. Now remember, God is patient 
in his judgment. He's merciful and he is patient. He's giving people time to turn and repent of their sin. Turn back to him that they may not be destroyed, but rather redeemed. He is patient. He is a patient God. And there are times when God will intervene in human history and judge sin. He does. He does. So his first mode, the first mode of wrath is that it has been revealed. The second mode of wrath is that God's wrath is being revealed right now. Like today, in the world, God's wrath from heaven is being revealed against sin. God has not changed. It is not as if 5,000 years ago, God hated sin, but today he's chill. Like he's relaxed, he's okay with sin. That's not God. He does not change. It is being revealed from heaven against rebellion. Now, why? Well, it's because God is too loving to tolerate sin. If God is loving, he must hate evil. He must not tolerate sin. A loving God cannot tolerate sin. In the same way, if you saw a mom, imagine you see, you see a mom with her, her kids, and they're at a park, and the kids are sitting down, and they have little shot glasses, and they have a can of gasoline, and the kids are pouring gasoline into the shot glasses. They're drinking the gasoline, and you walk over, you say, um, I'm sorry, what's going on here? What's happening? And the mom says, well, this is their choice. I'm just here to support them on their journey. So back up off me. Okay, what are you going to think if the mom says, their choice, I'm just here to support them on their journey? What do you say? Are you going to say, wow, she is so loving. She is, so, she is such an incredibly loving person. No way. No way. You're not going to think that mom is loving. In the same way, a God, a God that continuously allows sin to reign, to destroy, to poison. A God who tolerates everything is not a God of love. Now, how is God's wrath being revealed in our world? Think about that for a moment. How is God's wrath being revealed in our world? Many ways. There's one way mentioned in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Whoa. How does God reveal his wrath from heaven? One way is that he gives you what you want. He gives you what you want. We keep trying to drink the poison, and he says no. We keep trying to, trying to drink the poison, he says no. We keep trying to drink the poison, he says no. But eventually, God says, drink it. You can drink it. Therefore, God delivered them. It's a judgment. He delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. You can have your way. This means that so often the grace of God is a grace that resists you. If you got everything that you ever wanted, it would ruin you. It is the grace of God that resists the evil desires of our hearts. Mode number three, God's wrath will be revealed. God's wrath will be revealed. Romans 2.5, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. It's not only being revealed right now, but the wrath of God that is revealed against rebellion in this world is pointing to a, a day of wrath. There's a coming day 
of wrath. We should stop for a moment and just consider this reality. There's coming a day where your heart will stop beating in your chest. And you will stand in the presence of a holy God. You will. And that day will be a day of wrath. It is the final day. It is the day when God will eliminate evil. Revelation 6, 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Think about this. They, they know the day of judgment has come. And they're looking at their options and they're like, we don't want to stand in his presence. So they say, fall on us, mountains. Can we? They're seeking death to get away from the judgment of God. They say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. Here's the question. And who is able to stand? That's the question. The point of Romans 1 through 3 Eventually, Paul's going to get to the point where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He is working hard to convince humanity no one can stand before the wrath of God. You, we cannot face a holy God in our own righteousness and live. This is why we must have Christ. I mean, if you're talking to your coworker, a neighbor, a friend, family member, whoever, whoever it is who doesn't know Christ, and you're telling them about Christ, and they look at you and they say, good for you, I don't need that. I have a house, I have a job, I'm married, I have kids, I have money, my life is good. I don't need Christ. Why do they need Christ? For so many reasons. But look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Now look at how Jesus is described. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Why did Jesus come into the world? That he might deliver us from the wrath of God. He rescues us from the wrath of God. How does he do this? Through the cross. The cross is the place where God judges the sin of the world. His wrath was poured out on his son on our behalf. See, the cross is the place where God, see, it's not just some random death. Jesus dying on the cross isn't some random death. It is the day in history where God judges sin, where the wrath of God was poured out, not on us, but on Christ so where, where were my sins paid for? Where was the wrath? God hates my sin. Where did, did that wrath come out? Where, where, where were my sins judged? At the cross. At the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place by dying on the cross for our sins. And he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. So if you're a Christian, if you've turned from your sin, you've embraced the salvation of Christ in your life. If you're a Christian, is there any wrath left for you? No. It's all gone. This is why Paul can say, therefore, in Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, brothers and sisters. That's good news. There's no condemnation. The condemnation is gone. Why? Because Christ was condemned on our behalf. There's no wrath, wrath left. Why? Because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. It's all gone. His wrath has been extinguished. And now we stand in a position of grace as sons and daughters clothed in the very righteousness of God. 
Christ has delivered us from the wrath of God. Now, what do we do with this information? Well, just quickly to close, one point of application for you. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. This is part of the problem, that human beings, we know know God, we have the knowledge of God, we suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, and what we do is we, we do not glorify him or show him gratitude. Okay, so what what should we do as Christians? We should glorify God and show him gratitude. What does a Christian look like inwardly? Well, there's much you could say, but you could say at the very least, there's a heart to glorify God. There's a heart that gives thanks to God. How do we do this? How do we glorify God and give thanks to God? Uh, One little tip is don't let life stop with you. Let me explain. Don't let life stop with you. So if someone, maybe someone today uh, will look at you and say, you know what, you're having a great hair day or whatever it is. You could say, yeah, that's right. I am. I'm having a great, I, I worked really hard. I've been working on my hair for a long time and I am having a great hair day. So thanks. You could say that. Or you could say, you, you could let that roll up into your heart to glorify God and thank God. You could say, oh God, Thank you for how you made me. You say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you. Or you have a great smile. You know, you have a great smile. You could say, I've been brushing my teeth for years, you know, for a long, for a long time. Man. I mean, look at these teeth. They're, they're just spectacular. They're wonderful teeth. And you could just take credit. Or you get a promotion at your job. You get a promotion at your job. And you could say, you know what? I've worked really hard for this. I've earned it. Or you could say, oh, God. Thank you for the grace you've given me to receive this benefit. Or you're sitting around looking at your kids or your spouse or your friends or your family. And you say, look at these people, God. Thank you for these people. But you don't let everything terminate with you, end with you. Yeah, I've earned this. I've done this. I'm in charge of this. But everything in life, whether it's good or bad, let it roll up in your heart to glorify God and to thank him. God, oh God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. Oh God, thank you for forgiving me. Oh God, thank you for this person in my life. God, thank you for the food that you give me. Oh God, thank you for taking care of my needs. We ought to be the most thankful people on the planet. Even when you run into a car, you get into a car accident. Thank you that you rule the universe and that you will use all things for my good and your glory. We ought to be the most thankful people on the on on the planet. So brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, work hard by the grace of God to glorify him and to show him gratitude. Worship him. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. We are designed to praise and worship God forever. We should do that now. Every day of our life. We worship and praise him for who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.